Welcome to the We Go Places podcast, where we catch up with We Go grads who share with us the story of the journey to their unique careers. I'm your host, Brian Turnbaugh, English teacher at We Go since 2001, and you just heard intro music from Andy Georgieff, class of 2022. Today, I catch up with Matthew Potts from the class of 1997, a language school director in Poland and recipient of West Chicago High School's Distinguished Alumni Award for his work in the humanitarian aid during the recent Russian invasion of Ukraine. Matthew will share with us how he began with German classes at WeGo and how that journey landed him living abroad in Poland. If you're interested in learning more about how you can help Matthew's work in Ukraine, be sure to find the link on the episode page or search what Ukraine needs on GoFundMe.com, all one word. Joining us from the class of 1997 is Matthew Potts. Matthew, can you tell us what you do? I own and operate an English language school in a small city named Chanów in Poland. How does a young man from West Chicago begin his interest in, in language? And- well, uh, Let's see here. You know, in West Chicago, uh, I was surrounded by the Spanish language, and I was curious about Spanish, but there weren't really any opportunities for me to learn it in school. When I started high school, I actually chose to study German, and that is based on the fact that my brother, who's 12 years older than me, also studied German, and he moved to Austria. So I guess you could say maybe I was following in my in my brother's footsteps. Where did you go to school after after West Chicago? I had four years of German with uh, Terry Strom, and I enjoyed it. I really enjoyed uh, thinking in another language and and just discovering you know an entirely different way of looking at the world. I Started out majoring in political science at Truman State University, which is about six hours southwest of West Chicago. Um, I started out political science, and after one year, I discovered that I didn't want to go in that direction. And I was still on track to graduate in four years as a German major. When, when you major in a language at Truman, are there opportunities to do a study abroad? And, and did, was that something that kind of set the hook that much more? Yeah, well, I had that opportunity. So second semester of my junior year, I, yeah, I, I took part in the study abroad program. So I went and studied at a small Catholic university in Bayern. That was the exchange school for Truman State. And uh, that was a great opportunity. Uh, It was uh, actually summer semester. And seeing the way that university works in in Europe and seeing just a different approach to academics, it's much more, um, students have a lot more independence. They can opt to either attend lessons or not attend lessons. yeah, and actually, that was a that was a magical time. So I had five months um, in Europe. I spent most of the time in Germany, but I did travel around a bit. I saw London, Amsterdam, Vienna. Um, I was twenty one years old, and it was actually it's absolutely mind blowing. 
What's uh, just to kind of go back to like the the language mastery? When did you when did you cross over and and really kind of have a sense that you had a command of German, where it's like it became just second nature? You felt that you could really negotiate and manage yourself uh, in the context of, of of Germany and and all that. When did, when was the the aha moment? You know, it, it was less of an aha moment learning German. I can't I can't think of this moment the way that I can with Polish um, because mm. Polish was actually a harder road. Um, that was a harder road to hoe. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, I, I think where where I knew that I was on top of my German was it, during that semester. I had there were other students from the United States. There were students from all over the world, but I knew that I did not want to connect with the other American students, and uh, I just made I made German friends. So using German every day um, and basically not using English for a, about a week, yeah, you figure out, yeah, I'm okay. I, I think I got this. I <laughs> I'm I'm using it. Um, I don't know if it's all right, but everybody understands me. So, what were some of your uh, favorite places to travel uh, while you were uh, doing the study abroad? Well, um, I had visited Vienna when I was fourteen years old, and that was my that was my first time in Europe. That was uh, the trip that we took to attend my brother's wedding, and um, I had a chance to return to Vienna seven years later as a student without my family. And yeah, I, I, I remember seeing the same places, but uh, Vienna, Vienna is a really beautiful city. Um, And seeing it through the lens of, you know, an older version of myself was, Hmm. yeah, it was, it was memorable. You return back to the United States and what's, what's next for you uh, when you uh, come back uh, as a student? Uh, What's, how did you finish up your coursework uh, at Truman? Well, um, so let's see here. I, I really had German, um, I wouldn't say I, it didn't, wasn't mastered, but I was able to do the work, uh, for my German classes pretty, pretty easily. Uh, I, uh, I had two minors, uh, philosophy and English linguistics. Um, yeah, so I, you know, I knew, and I was I was warned by the counselor, the the advisors there, the academic advisors, that my degree should be combined with like a business major, or I should add something to my major. I was warned that I wouldn't have job prospects. Um, however, I didn't add a second major, and I decided that I just I wanted to finish uh, university with a with a good liberal arts education. And ah, I was satisfied with my education, but they were right. It did not lead to job prospects. The only, um, the only job opportunities were teaching German, but I didn't, I didn't want to do that. I, um, did not see myself becoming a teacher at that time. What was the, uh, so you, you come, you graduate and then it was, uh, some some time there to to reflect. What was the first step forward to get to a teaching? So let's see here. I came back from university, and um, 
I took a landscaping job the summer after I finished my college degree, which I think my dad kind of, <laughs> he was kind of surprised by that. He, he couldn't understand that. I, I, um, I really wasn't sure what I wanted to do. I can, I can say that with confidence. Um, I, I didn't know where I was going. I, I knew that I had finished college and that I didn't want to, um, I didn't want to spend the rest of my life in academia because I, I have not only good friends, but family who, who basically just followed that route. And that's not what I wanted to do. So I, um, in order to earn money when I was back home, um, I was a substitute teacher, which was something that, I don't know, it was, it was well paid. It fit together well with uh, the part-time job that I had with my dad. And I, I did, there was part of me that just wanted to explore the possibility of teaching. Um, so yeah, my first, my first experience was as a substitute teacher, uh, actually at my first day was at West Chicago high school. I was covering a PE teacher. Then what kind of made your second step to kind of then head towards, uh, your, 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 your teaching experience? What I became aware of as a, as a public school teacher is that I did not, as a substitute teacher was that I couldn't see myself teaching in a public school. Um, it's not, it's not where I saw myself now. And I think that's partly because of the student who I was. I liked learning, but my grade was not the most important thing. And I don't want to say I was, um, a class clown. Cause that's not, that's not accurate either. I, I tried to be respectful of the teacher, but there were many teachers who were simply unable to motivate me. And my thought was, oh my, oh my goodness, if I become a public school teacher, I'm going to have students like me who, <laughs> who, in spite of my best efforts, will not, um, will not accept, will not accept what I'm trying to do. So, I need to fast forward to my time as a volunteer in Austria. So there were a couple of years in California. Um, again, I was just working simple jobs, um, trying to figure out what I wanted, what I wanted out of life. And um, whatever it was in California, that wasn't for me. Came back to the Midwest for a while. And um, I had an opportunity to go and be a volunteer at... A, at a castle, at a 14th century castle, which was a Christian conference and retreat center as well. That's where my brother worked. So there's op there was this opportunity for me to come as a volunteer. And there were young people, a little bit younger than me, actually. I was one of the older volunteers. I think at the time I was 26, 25, 25 years old. And there were there were young people around 18, 19, 22 from Brazil, Romania, Russia, Poland. And um, I was frequently asked by my, by my friends, by my fellow volunteers for 
help with English. Now, because I had studied German and I knew basically the ins and outs of how to learn a foreign language, I was a really competent helper for my for my friends and actually um, for the young woman who would later become my wife. Uh, she was one of the one of the friends that I was helping with English, and you know, it, it, there was this there was this one particular day, and I'll never forget it. This was the the aha moment. This is where I got my calling. I went for a walk. Uh, it's just this beautiful valley, just absolutely idyllic, and. I was walking with my friend Natalia, now my wife. We were not dating at this time yet. And it was just after lunch. Uh, I was working in the kitchen at that time. So lunch was a working time. So it was after preparing lunch for uh, the community, we took a walk, which was, yeah, maybe sort of a routine um, that we settled into. And I fell asleep on a bench, just, just this, this quick cat nap. And I, I woke up, um, and I, I spoke before I was really even thinking clearly. And I said, I don't know what I want to do with my life. <laughs> and Natalia <laughs> said, I don't think I can help you with that. But she, there was, I, I hadn't given her any context. So, I had this thought that I I think I'm a teacher. I am a teacher, but I don't want to teach in public school. I just don't. Hey, I can teach English as a foreign language. Um, then I don't have to... Um, I can avoid the parts of teaching that I'd rather not be involved with. So that is motivating others, uh, discipline, you know, all, all the things that an effective public school teacher basically has to, has to master. I saw a way around that. So teaching adults, I could focus on the material, focus on the learning and, and teaching without the, um, yeah, the parts that I didn't want to take part in as far as teaching goes. Yeah, that makes that makes sense. You you have a you have a, a different type of motivated student that's kind of been funneled in a, a different way than what sometimes the 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 wider net that's cast with public school teachers. I was wondering if um if uh, any of your uh, the minor as a as linguistics did that kind of give you more uh, mastery and thinking about how to prepare concepts of language when you started working with your students? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. That those, those, I think it was, uh, I needed to take five different courses in linguistics. They all helped me somehow. Um, so at this time I was also, I don't know if this is relevant, but, um, I loved studying language, but I also loved English. And, um, at that time I was writing poetry. So I really, I, I had a, yeah, I, I had a, an interest in how English works and a pretty good command um, for a starting for somebody starting as an English teacher. I had a, a really good head start. 
So what's your so then you you have this kind of uh, catnap uh, right uh, epiphany where you're like wait or at least at least the, the beginning of, of an epiphany uh, and all of that. So then uh, what's how did you find the the teaching position? Okay, so the next step, I enrolled in a master's program as soon as I came back to the states. I enrolled in um, University of Illinois Chicago. Um, in the teaching English as a second language, or, or I um I registered, and yeah, so I was planning to get my master's degree in uh, EFL teaching, um, but I actually um, I had a decision to make, so Natalia. We were still dating, and I really liked her, but we couldn't live in the same place because the the position, the opportunity in in Austria expired. Um, it was bought out by private business people and turned into a five star hotel. Um, and Natalia needed to go and find something else to do, so she went to England to work in a similar capacity. Uh, at a at a retreat center, and I had this choice: I could either start a master's program in the city, or I could go and spend another couple months and figure out whether or not I wanted to spend the rest of my life with Natalia. And that's what I did. And um, so, <laughs> so, um, so listen. I, I can't believe how naive I was. Um, I remember I asked her to marry me uh, right around Christmas time. And I didn't speak a word of Polish at this time. I asked her dad for permission. Um, how I did that is, is another story. Um, and he he said, you know, he, he liked me. He knew that I, I made his daughter happy, but... It, He's a practical man. His first question was, how are you going to provide for my daughter? And I I had another aha moment. I'm like, wow, that's a really reasonable question. <laughs> I wasn't worried about it. I wasn't worried yeah. about it. I thought, no, I'll be, I'll be fine. I'll... Anyway, um, so what I knew is that I wanted to go through my life with her by my side and actually we decided to get married and the way for us to spend our married life in the same place was to start in Poland. Now, Natalia had had employment at a language school in her hometown. And that language school was still operating when, um, when we got married and we, we started our life. And um, so the owner of the language school, well, knowing Natalia and, and having a good opinion about, you know, she was a great employee and a, and a, and a good teacher, especially for young learners. Uh, being a native speaker in a city of this size, so there's 40,000 people in the city. Uh, about 70,000 if you count the villages around. Um, I was the only native speaker, American native speaker, in this city at that time. So I immediately had work 
just, yeah, as, as a native speaker teacher. And that's how I got started. It, it paid well relative to what Polish people earn. It was pretty easy work for me because actually as a native speaker, you're not so focused on teaching the grammar and the nuts and bolts of the language, but really just being um, a conversation partner and and a language model. So yeah, um, we started at, uh, we started our life together working for her former boss and it was, um, I mean, it was just kind of obvious. It was like, what else, what else would I do for a job here? I mean, what's a typical day like for you? So like how many students do you see and like, how is it one-on-one? Do you have several students at a time? What's, what's a session like? Okay. So, um, what I did 15 years ago is quite different from what I do now. Um, because at that time I was not the owner of the school. I've been, I've been the owner of, uh, a language school for 10 years now. So what it looks like, I have, okay, I have students ranging in age from fifth grade um, to adults. And some of my lessons are individual. I don't really have individual lessons with um, with 12-year-olds, 11 and 12-year-olds, just because yeah, it's it's a lot of pressure and um, for the for the student and also. Um, all right, so what it looks like, I have between five and six hours in the afternoon, and between one and three hours in the morning. So my morning lessons would be with adults, with people who have flexible work schedules and and can meet in the morning. In the afternoon, I mostly meet with groups of um, of students, uh, children from the age of twelve up to eighteen. Um, and then, so the the hours are basically like three p.m. till eight or nine p.m. Uh, five days a week. That's just yeah. And I and I have sixty minute hours, so there's no passing period. One group finishes, the next group starts. Oh, so just not the, to give away like uh, the secrets of the trade or something like that, because you've been studying language so intensely for my goodness, like two decades now. And I was wondering, like in your observation of watching students learn language and you've been, again, you've seen this so uh, up close, what's the best thing that a student can do in order to really have the the most immediate like return on that particular language exercise that you've you've seen in all the various uh, you know, teaching and acquisition of language, what have you seen that's like the one thing that's just a surefire way to uh, augment uh, the the learning uh, on the students' end? Necessity, necessity. Mm, I think anyone, yeah. anyone who understands that they have to can anyone. And, and that, I mean, and there's definitely a spectrum of talent. There are people, and this is very uncommon. I would say, I'd say about one in a hundred students can learn a foreign language without the necessity, just out of desire and through willpower. And I, (laughs) I, I, um, I admire these people 
I, I cherish them as students because my job's really easy. Um, in that case, I mean, basically if it wasn't me, it would be somebody else. Um, but yeah, necessity when somebody understands that they have to, and that could be because of work or because of studies or because they're moving. Um, when somebody understands that they have to, they can and vice versa. If it's, Oh, it's my choice to, to be here. I'm choosing to learn English. Why am I learning English? I don't know. I just, you know, I want to, I want to speak English. And that doesn't, quite often that's not enough. The desire to learn English doesn't equate to the ability. But if there's a necessity, if there's an understanding that they need to, then yeah, they, they, the rate of success is very high when I have a student who feels like they have to. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that incentive really makes a lot of sense the way that you, you explain that. Now, you said that you went from being an employee at this school to then being an, an owner of it. Did you buy that particular school or did you open up a, a new one? Well, um, okay, so <laughs> when we get into this particular business, um, I did not, I didn't buy the client list because truth be told, the client list doesn't have value um, because ultimately students follow their teacher. I, and I, you know, I'm on the other side of this now. I've been building up my language school for, for 10 years and I would love to believe that it has value without me that I could somehow monetize what I've built in, in like that I could sell it. But the reality is even as well as I'm doing, we have quite a few students. There's nobody who would buy it. Nobody would give me what it's worth to me um, for the right to teach my students, because then it's also then the choice of the students whether or not they want to continue with the school. So it's not like other businesses like, okay, so another small business that I understand well, printing. Okay. My dad had a small printing company as a, a small printing company. Your company has value because you have capital. Okay. You have equipment and um, I mean, the equipment is, is a big part of it, but also the space to operate. When it comes to private language school teaching, the capital is the, the, the teachers themselves. And if they decide that they would like to be in a position of ownership, all they have to do is either rent a space or travel to people's homes and they can make, well, uh, more. So um, how it started, in my case, and that, that's a, a long explanation. You're going to end up editing okay, a lot. That, that, makes sense. that makes sense, though. That makes a, I mean, I totally get what you're saying. Okay. So how it works. It's about relationships. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's all about the relationship. And, and students will follow their teacher. And um, over the past 10 years, I won't get into it, but uh, it happens. There are some, there are some dirty deeds. There's some um, double crossing and... 
Yeah, I mean, we experienced a mutiny a few years ago. Uh, mm-hmm. I had a... We had five teachers on board with us in 2017, and at the start of 2018, none of them were still with us, and um, that was that was hard. So, how it worked in the beginning, uh, the owner of the school proposed that we take over, my wife and I, because we seemed to know what we were doing. We were highly engaged. For her. The school was more of a hobby. It wasn't essential to her income. So the way that she was running her particular language school at that time, it was not very profitable. And it wasn't an appealing option for us to take it over because really it didn't make any money. Uh, Her costs were too high. She owned the building where she was renting. And that's, that's the only thing that made it viable. So the way that she made it appealing to us, the third time that she offered the school to us, she said, listen, you can teach these students. I want to see my school continue. I'll be happy if you rent from me at this price. So she didn't sell us a list, but we took on the costs of renting the space in the building and that allowed her, you know, and if you, if you have tenants in your building who are responsible and who pay for uh, utilities, that's, that's advantageous. So that was enough of a, of an incentive for her to say, go ahead, see what you can do. Um, So she charged us friendly rent, uh, a friendly uh, price and supported us in many ways at the beginning because actually I saw what being a small business owner did to my dad and I actually wanted no part of running a failing business, but she made it relatively easy. Um, so yeah, we, uh, we took it on. Um, and two years later, she changed her mind. <laughs> uh <laughs> But at that point, we had already branded ourselves and we had already established relationships with, uh, we'd grown the school and established new relationships. So I remember the conversation that she had with me. She said, I want to come o- come back and take over my language school. And I, I got stuck on those words. I'm like, what do you mean my language school? Because it, the, the turnover had been about, I don't know, 60% at that point. So some of the clients who were ours were her clients, but most of them were ours. So she um, she actually got back into um, got back into the game uh, as a competitor to us. Um, yeah, <laughs> it. And, and here's why we 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 ended up prevailing. We had we were we had the teachers. Um, students had relationships with the teachers. They were satisfied with what they were learning, so they stayed with us. 
Um, One of the other things that kind of came up as well is is the challenges that you've seen that has happened since early in last spring and kind of your humanitarian uh, efforts uh, as well that you were recognized back uh, here at school for the the Distinguished Alumni Award. Uh, I was wondering if you can kind of also touch on what that experience has been like and what you do with that. I've seen historical moments. I've seen, you know... uh war, uh, unjust wars. And, you know, it's, it's always an abstraction. It's something that you can sort of put out of your mind because it's on the other side of the world. Um, we have friends in Ukraine and we've maintained, we had maintained contact with them from our time in Austria. So when Russia marched into Ukraine, uh, it was painful. I mean, we weren't, we weren't being shot at. There wasn't a fear of death or, you know, we didn't have a sense of danger, but it, it, it really hurt. It, it, it felt like something that we could not stand by and, and just watch. So the whole city and actually many people in Poland felt the same. Um, You know, Polish people can sympathize with suffering under Russian aggression. So immediately there was this outpouring of sympathy. And uh, in that first week, there was a massive collection in our city. And, um, you know, something that we have in our, in, in Shanuf, and this is one of the reasons that we stay and it's so special, is community. And community has sustained our business. Community has sustained our family. Um, and it was really neat to see so many familiar faces, uh, at that, at that collection, at that food and, and, um, humanitarian goods drive. But there wasn't, there was another thing going on. Um, our economy, I won't be able to get into all of it. We've been borrowing, and I say we, like our government has been borrowing from the future for a while. There've been a lot of, um, well, questionable decisions. And we started to see the cracks in the economy in January and February of last year. A lot of other small businesses that we knew were terrified or just simply shut down because um, they changed they changed the, the playing field uh, for small business owners. So what I saw was generosity and enthusiasm, which was unsustainable. Uh, We're not a rich country. We're not a rich city. And everybody spent basically like people I know spent as much as they spend on two months worth of groceries in that first week. Wow. Um, You're right. And, and I thought, well, this is great, but it's not going to happen a month from now. Yeah. And so I did not intentionally try to become a fundraiser. Um, I was simply, <laughs> I was just, a, I was a live nerve that week. I was just responding with emotion and uh, feeling everything. And the <laughs> there, it, it was actually... One of my classmates, 
not one of my favorite classmates from West Chicago, but a classmate from West Chicago who posted a really funny political meme and it, you know, it, 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 it was sort of celebrating Putin at the expense of Joe Biden. And it was totally off the mark, totally inappropriate. And I spent, I don't know, half a day trying to figure out how to respond. I couldn't just let the misinformation or disinformation sit there. And I know that there's so much disinformation on the internet. It's kind of, it's kind of hopeless uh, to try to fight against all of it. But in this particular, I, I felt like I just needed to do something. So I didn't do anything about that guy's post. I did my own video post in an effort to educate. I just wanted to explain to anyone who wanted to listen um, what the significance of the historical moment was. I wanted to make it very clear that Ukraine is a sovereign nation, that they are, as a, as a Western democracy, um, our ally. And basically that's... So the, the, I, I also included a little bit of information about the Revolution of Dignity, in 2014. So I'm, I'm all about liberal democracy. I'm all about, uh, you know, the, the constitution and, you know, the, this great experiment. So it's all on the line. I, what I see is it's all on the line here. Mm -hmm. So I posted an informational post where at the end I was basically offering to, I don't know, shop, like to support local efforts. If somebody wanted to support our local efforts, I was thinking about funneling money. I, and, and again, I didn't know how much, I didn't know where it was going, but I thought I'm sure my American friends want to help, but don't know how. And I know how I know that the food we're putting in these vans is going to hungry people. And so I just made the offer. And then, and then, wow, um, one of my good friends <laughs> uh, shared my post and reached out to many of his friends. And suddenly I found myself in the position of a fundraiser. So a little bit by accident, a little bit out of um, just circumstance, but um, I, didn't, I didn't back down from that. Um, it was scary. It was unfamiliar. I've never been in, you know, I've never done charity work, but, uh, yeah, I mean, if you're in a position to help, then you just help. It's not, you know, don't overthink it. Um, so people were trusting me with, um, making decisions about how to spend their money to help Ukrainian people. And, um, that's what I did. And I, and I, it must have been it must have been incredibly rewarding to have uh, to have been to uh, again to assemble all the various different sundries and, and donations and then uh, to deliver it uh, as as well. Uh, what was it like upon your first uh, delivery of of all the the donations? So okay, I mean, we got 
we had a lot of money that, that came in and we went shopping with this money. And so we had these boxes and huge lines at the border. And how do you, you know, there's this question that we had to tackle. How do we get these goods to our friends in Lviv? So this is where we leaned on uh, our connections on the network that we had built. And we basically had the same phone numbers that the city, uh, that the mayor's office had. We were looking for a driver. So um, we just needed a reliable driver. And it wasn't, you know, it's again, it's hard to imagine that there's, there's a city four hours away and you can't send anything because there's no, there's no post. It's a, it's a country uh, post office. Um, there's no postal service. So, yeah, actually, when we finally found somebody who was willing to take our things, we didn't, we didn't know who he was, but the mayor's office vouched for him as a person of character who will, who will deliver the things where they need to go. So there was definitely rejoicing, and that was really just like I would say four or five hundred dollars worth of uh, worth of goods. But it felt like a big victory just to see it reach our friends. And when we first got those pictures uh, of them with our goods, um, with the goods we'd sent, it was it it seemed possible. Because actually, we, you know, <laughs> we generated this enthusiasm, and there was all this money coming in, and and there was this thought: what if we can't do anything with it? What if this is just fruitless because we don't have the connections and we don't have any way of delivering it? But um, ultimately, ultimately we did, and um, there are there are three drivers, and we still cooperate with all of them. Um, one of them is somebody we've known basically since we moved here, um, but we didn't know he was actually involved with going. Um, until he contacted us because he heard that we were spending money and he wanted to see, you know, if there was a way for us to cooperate. So, yeah. So this has been on, so this has been ongoing. So you've had several of these material runs into, uh, into the Ukraine. So how, how many would you say have you been able to send? Um, okay. <laughs> I haven't, I, there's no count. It's like, I don't have a count. There is a count. I could, um, I could tell you with precision if I were to go back through, you know, everything. We've probably spent, um, we've probably sent between fifteen and and twenty um, shipments um, in wow. that direction. That's incredible. Um, so the the number, what what we do know, because we did our accounting very carefully because we pledged, we made a promise to spend everything that we were given. So 107,000 Zlotis, uh, it basically comes out to 22, wait, hold on. Um, depending on, depending on which, um, mm, 
which exchange rate you find. So as of today, what is 107,000 Polish Zlotys? I'm entering it on, okay, so 107. And that was as of this summer. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Into dollars, convert. So $24,000 is what we sent as of August. Um, and we've continued. I opened up a GoFundMe page, uh, which is not a simple thing because if you're in Poland and you don't have a U.S. bank account, you can't actually open GoFundMe. GoFundMe is only available mm -hmm. in like 20, 23 countries. So when I was visiting this summer, one of my objectives was to open a, open a bank account so that I could open a Go, GoFundMe page so that I could continue fundraising because I was looking for an alternative to PayPal. With the GoFundMe page, um, we've raised, let's say, another uh, $1,500, but that's been this fall. And, you know, I hate, to, I hate the thought that there's a war happening and there are hungry people and I'm recognized as a as a humanitarian organizer and this fall I needed to focus on my language school um that's that's where my focus was this fall so we've been you know now that things have settled in and you know that the every year we start over September is absolutely a brutal month November, uh, October we're still figuring things out Basically, Halloween each year is kind of the turning point where we have things under control. And actually, this year, we took on a second location for our language school. So during September and uh, October of this year, we weren't able to really send or do very much in the way of humanitarian work. However, we resumed in November and... Um, yeah, uh, we have so in our in our living room we have a a relatively small flat uh, apartment is what you guys call it. So it's seventy seven square meters. Uh, we have eight hundred an eight hundred square foot apartment, which is, I guess, small by American standards. And um, we have no access to our wardrobes right now. Um, this is a logistical thing. We have a bunch of boxes in front of the, it's just like, there's, there's a, there's a stack of, uh, humanitarian aid that's waiting for a driver. Um, we have a ton of snow right now. So the trip that was supposed to be leaving today, uh, was postponed. Um, the, the guys who drive, they also have jobs. Uh, nobody, you know, nobody's paid to do this work. So, you know, it's, it's something that we have to do in our free time. So, yeah. Um, so we've sent, I would say, yeah, between 15 and 20 um, shipments of goods um, into Ukraine, but also through the end of July, end of August, we did a lot to support uh, Ukrainian um, guests, I don't like the word refugees, are Ukrainian guests in Shanov. So 
probably this isn't in the news and this isn't something people have thought about, but um, we saw our culture here in Poland change. It went from being a monolingual nation to a bilingual nation in about a month. That's incredible. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it just, <laughs> you could see it, you can feel it. Uh, it, it, it. You know, suddenly there were no places to rent uh, because either people, the owners of these uh, apartments put them up for, you know, gave them away for free for uh, Ukrainian uh, displaced Ukrainian people or, or just, or people had money, um, Ukrainian, um, uh, immigrants, refugees had, you know, so that was, uh, it's been a really volatile year. I kind of, it's kind of hard to believe that, uh, the end of February that still hasn't been a year. Cause that feels about like about two years ago. Matthew, where do you, what, where, what's your, what's your goal for the school in the next five, 10 years? <laughs> to be honest, I've had a lot of second thoughts about the school. I, I love, I love what I'm doing. Uh, I love my school. I put my heart and soul in it. Um, the reality is I could have the most successful language school in the city and I wouldn't earn nearly as much as uh, brand new college graduates in the States. And mm. that's not really how I think about things. However, I'm, I'm 43 years old. Money has never been the most important thing. However, um, you know, like I'm not sure that it's the responsible thing for me to do to just stay the course and continue <laughs> uh, doing work I love. And, you know, it, it, it just, yeah, I'm, I'm looking at keep maybe, you know, maybe what I can do is um, keep the school open, but pivot to something else. And one thing that I've considered is uh, the possibility of, um, working for a larger organization that needs, well, <laughs> once the shooting stops, yeah. Ukraine will need to be rebuilt. And that, that process, um, there are going to be winners and there'll be losers, but mostly winners um, in an effort to rebuild the country. So I was just thinking, you know, if there's an American company and it is, you know, some kind of business, uh, which needs competent people with familiarity with the region and with, uh, local business, I don't know. Um, I just see that I might be able to pivot to a career in which I can help 
rebuild Ukraine in a sustainable manner. Because it's going to be rebuilt, and it's going to be rebuilt in some places with greed and with a total lack of um, respect for local people and local cultures. And there'll be other places where it's done right. And um, I don't know. My brother-in-law pointed this out to me, that there are big businesses who are looking for people like me who already live here, who already have familiar with familiarity with Polish language, um, that they can hire um, as... Uh, as managers and as, as people who implement something. So I, I don't know what's going to happen with the school. I don't know if there is a career for me um, in uh, developing Ukraine sustainably, but uh, I'm going to keep my options open. Oh, that's exciting. Well, Matthew, this has been so interesting to hear about, like your 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 journey uh, from the states you know, to Poland through through Germany uh, and all of that. And the way I usually like to end interviews is to ask uh, the guest, "What tips for success would you give current Wildcats?" Okay, um, your comfort zone is what you need to leave behind. Uh, the most exciting things that have ever happened to me, the most important things that have happened to me, happened to me when I was absolutely uncomfortable outside of my comfort zone because that's where that's where you grow. So that's one thing I would say. Um, another thing I would tell fellow West Chicago Wildcats, um, be, be proud to be from West Chicago. I know... I know like what I thought of West Chicago when I was there and I was absolutely wrong. You can go anywhere in the world and you say, I'm from Chicago and people, people will recognize that and they will listen to you. They'll take an interest. It, being from West Chicago has been, uh, you know, I mean, I say Chicago. I know I'm not from Chicago, but people people don't know. I mean, they're not going to differentiate between West Chicago and Chicago. Um, being from West Chicago, you can do anything um, in another country. I mean, in the country. Being from West Chicago is a gift. Um, embrace community. Community is uh, one of the things one of my treasures that's something that i have here and i can say a lot of my friends who are in the states don't have community so yeah get outside your comfort zone find community embrace it matthew thank you so much this has been great and uh best of luck and have a, a wonderful holiday season uh thank you so much brian and um yeah, it's been it's been great. Uh, the the chance that I had to be back in in my old high school and to see the way that it's changed and to see the students that are there, uh, it's just been it's been awesome. It it's uh it's not something that I I take for granted. Uh, West Chicago has given me so much, and uh, yeah, I wish everybody there the best, and I wish you the best. Um, thank you for your time, and thank you for bringing me on. Thanks for listening. You can follow Eagle Places on iTunes and Google Podcasts. 
Just search WeGoVox, that's WeGo, V-O-X, or search on Facebook for WeGo Places Podcast. 